photographers who are telling stories. We have, you know, Dr. Jenny Adler, who's a cave diver and conservation photographer, um, who's, you know, using photojournalism. We have, um, you know, technologists. We also have these women athletes like Waskia Nazarene, who is, you know, has hiked, climbed to the seven summits and uses adventure as a way to in inspire, um, you know, women uh, to, to feel empowered and to get involved in activism. And, you know, I think we also have um, examples of women who are like Jean Beasley, who is this amazing woman who uh, had a whole career and then found an injured sea turtle, right? And, and started a sea turtle rehabilitation center after retiring, I believe. That's Gabby Salazar, a conservation photographer, National Geographic explorer, and co-author of a new book called No Boundaries that showcases the accomplishments and inspirational stories of 25 women explorers and scientists. Coming up, we'll talk to Gabby about women in STEM disciplines, or as we prefer to say, STEAM, because we recognize the importance that art has to society. Welcome, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. Today we are celebrating the achievements of women scientists, explorers, and adventurers. Often underrepresented in mainstream media, the women who are making a difference in the STEM disciplines are some of the people we will hear about from Gabby Salazar because of her book, no Boundaries, which showcases inspirational stories of 25 change makers we should know about. But their stories have not been shared until now. It's important to know who these real-life trailblazers are because, as Gabby tells us, No Boundaries is a book she wished she had growing up because the inspirational stories are transformative. Well, my co-author Claire Fiesler and I are both National Geographic Explorers, and we met through the National Geographic Explorer community. And we also met a lot of amazing women through that, um, that community. And at the same time, we recognized, um, starting about, we started talking about this maybe eight, nine years ago, that uh, women are generally underrepresented, right, in the media in terms of being experts and, you know, in, in terms of the representation of scientists. And mm -hmm. when we were growing up, you know, both of us were so eager to find women that we could look up to and, um, you know, kind of emulate in, in science and exploration fields. And so we really thought of this book because it's a book we wanted to have when we were growing up. Right. And I, I love the diversity and the fields, the ethnic diversity that uh, you've you know, uh, included in this book. What was your selection process or how did these women end up here? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. And we kind of had two goals, I think, when we were selecting the women. So one is, um, you know, to make sure that we picked women who could share stories that kind of address, you know, lots of different themes related to the challenges and opportunities that women have in science and exploration. So we were looking for, you know, women from, as you said, you know, maybe different countries around the world, different racial and ethnic backgrounds, um, and also um, women who could talk about, you know, maybe challenges related to motherhood or challenges related to, um, you know, uh, not having a lot of opportunities when they were growing up and how they overcame those challenges um, as they're pursuing a career in STEM. 
But then we also really wanted to have kind of a yearbook of the different careers, pathways, and um, scientific disciplines that young people can be involved in. And I think for both Claire and myself, that was really important because, you know, growing up, like for me, I was a smart kid, I was curious, I read a lot, um, but, you know, people around me would just tell me that I could be, my options were to be kind of like a doctor or a lawyer, which are both really important jobs, but weren't exactly what I was looking for. And so having exposure to all of these different possibilities is I think the first step for a kid envisioning themselves in these fields. Clearly the book has a focus on diversity and it's, and it's something that encourages young people, whether boys or girls, to look at STEM and uh, see themselves in these, these places and areas, uh, science and environmental advocacy. Why was having that face uh, important for you uh, in, in terms of looking at the diversity? Because a lot of times we, we, we hear about these efforts to increase uh, you know, perspectives and have women and have minorities, but it's still, you know, a generation or two later, there's not, not really the change that we want to see. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think there was a paper I read when we were working on this, a review paper that looked at um, kind of the draw a scientist test, which you may have heard about where, you know, you researchers many years, decades ago, asked kids to draw scientists. And of course, most of the scientists at that time that kids drew, you know, were kind of a Caucasian, older male in a lab coat, right? And there was a recent review paper that looked at studies from, I think it was 2003 to 2018. Um, and it looked at 30 studies to see if this had changed over time. And unfortunately, you know, they found that stereotypes of scientists as middle-aged Caucasian males in lab coats have largely remained consistent despite kind of these efforts to talk about, you know, diversifying our representations of scientists. And I think that visuals, and I am a photographer, so I'm kind of probably a little biased here, but visuals are really, really important. And so we really wanted to make sure that we didn't just talk about it. We really showed relatable female role models that could kind of, you know, represent um, just a small fraction of the diversity out there, right? But that could help expand visual representations of women um, so that every kid could look at this and hopefully find at least someone they could say, wow, I, I can see a little bit of myself in this person and maybe I could do this too. Now you touched on the struggles that uh, some of the women uh, face that you feature in the book, uh, adversity and overcoming that, that's an integral part of this book. Why, why was that so important to share? Well, you know, I think that the reality is there are a lot of barriers that women in STEM face, and there's a lot of research being done on that. There's a lot of research coming out, articles in the newspaper. Um, and we didn't want to kind of totally sugarcoat it and just make it seem easy because anybody who tries to contribute to our knowledge of the planet, contribute to changing the world, they're going to face barriers at some point, right? Explorers, like that's, that's part of it. That's part of the life. And so we wanted to make sure we 
represented, you know, some of these different types of struggles and barriers that people face and showed how they overcame them. And we really wanted to kind of help normalize failure as well. And so we encouraged like every interview we did, we asked kind of women, the women about what's a time that you failed, right? And how did you get through that? And I think that that's a really important part of the book. And I'm really grateful to our editor at National Geographic who kind of let us dig a little deeper here rather than just, you know, telling the successes, um, but also kind of make, make it real. No Boundaries includes inspiring stories of 25 remarkable women. And although she has no favorite, Gabby shared some stories that personally resonated with her as she continues to grow as an explorer. I really love um, this story from uh, Dr. Patricia Wright, who's a primatologist who works in Madagascar. Um, And I think what I like about her story is she really talks about kind of evolving over time as a person, as a scientist, as an explorer. You know, she starts her career as a social worker. She comes to primatology like later in life, you know, not, I mean, not so much later in life, but she doesn't do it right as an undergraduate, right? She, she has this first career. She, she challenges herself to go back and get a PhD. She does that. Then she realizes that the, the lemurs that she's studying are being impacted by conservation issues, environmental issues. And then she becomes a conservationist. And so I think, uh, you know, I think growing up, I was t- had this idea, and I think a lot of kids do, that paths are linear, right? Like we just pick what we're going to be and then we just do it, you know, and we follow the steps and we get there. And I like, I re- re- related to her story because my career has been anything but linear. Sounds like your careers have also been anything right. but linear. <laughs> and I think that that's a really important lesson for kids that like we can grow and we don't just grow when we're kids, we can grow as adults as well. And so I love that story. Um, And then I think the other one that I love is um, one by Jennifer Farr Davis, who is a long distance hiker. And for me, what's so special about her story, she talks about setting out to set um, a record for hiking the Appalachian Trail. And when she first does it, she goes for the women's record and she breaks it. But after doing it, instead of feeling totally satisfied with herself, she reflects and says, wow, why did I just go for the women's record? Like, why didn't I go for the overall record? And she kind of, you know, struggles with that and then goes back and eventually sets the overall record. But it's really about kind of like, you know, how do we set these goals for ourselves that even, you know, surpass maybe what our initial goal is? And I I, I like that a lot. Yeah, I didn't even realize there was a record. Yeah, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it'll make you feel tired just to read it. Trust me. (laughs) This is the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Support our work by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us so you can help other like-minded listeners find us. Also, visit worldfootprints.com and subscribe to our newsletter for travel resources, news, and event information. We delight in the beauty of the butterfly, but rarely admit the changes it has gone through to achieve that beauty. Maya Angelou. 
The butterfly transforms the way we do when we give space to the experiences that travel gifts us. Here's more of our conversation with Gabby Salazar, conservation photographer and co-author of a new National Geographic book, No Boundaries. One other thing, uh, given that given that you feature 25 extraordinary women uh, in this space of environmental science, environmental advocacy, do you believe that uh, the perspective that that uh, these women bring is something that is desperately needed in in this space, which oftentimes perhaps has male leadership or is dominated, as you said, by men in white, white coats. What is it that you think the women are bringing to this space that hasn't been there or is something that is opening up eyes as to how we should look at care and concern for the environment? Well, I think one of the things that's come up a lot, I do a lot of you know um, teaching and uh, kind of trainings for, for t- educators. And, you know, a lot of the examples that kids have of women scientists and explorers are from history. And these are amazing women, right? You know, we can all mention or think about probably the name Marie Curie. That's the name of a woman scientist that comes up. There are less kind of examples. I think there are increasingly more, and there are a lot of good kids books out there that highlight women scientists, but there are less examples maybe for the classroom of kind of relatable women today. And I think that that is really important because a lot of research shows that, um, you know, girls cite a lack of female role models as a key reason they don't pursue careers in STEM. And so I think that's one thing that the book does is tries to highlight women of all different ages as well um, and different you know, early career, not just somebody who's already made it right and already like changed the world, because sometimes it's hard to know, like, how do I become this amazing Nobel science, you know, Nobel prize winning scientist, right? We wanted to highlight women along the whole pathway, right? And the whole trajectory so that um, you could see the different phases of a career. STEM is a commonly used acronym for the science, technology, engineering, and mathematic disciplines. But Gabby is a photographer and we are arts advocates. So I wanted to discuss our preferred acronym, STEAM, which includes art as an important discipline. Oh, I think it's so important. And it's something that we really, you know, I mean, it's obviously a book about women in STEAM, as you say, and I wish STEAM would catch up on more as, a, as an acronym. You know, we, it, it hasn't as much as it should, but we really wanted to make sure that, you know, kids knew in our selection of these fields that you don't have to get a PhD, right? Or you don't have to go through a traditional science pathway um, in academia to contribute to our knowledge of the world, right? And so, or, 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 you know, saving the world or, you know, helping contribute to conservation. And so we have photographers who are telling stories. We have, you know, Dr. Jenny Adler, who's a cave diver and conservation photographer, um, who's, you know, using photojournalism. We have, um, you know, technologists. We also have these women athletes like Waskia Nazarene, who is, you know, has hiked, climbed to the seven summits and uses adventure as a way to in- inspire, um, you know, women uh, to, to feel empowered and to get involved in activism. And, you know, I think we also have um, examples of women who are like Jean Beasley, who is this amazing woman who uh, had a whole career and then 
found an injured sea turtle, right? And, and started a sea turtle rehabilitation center after retiring, I believe. And, you know, she's a citizen scientist. So she, she is contributing in, in ways, you know, without having that formal background. And she talks about that in her profile. So yeah, I think it's really important to know that we all can have a place in STEAM. Speaking of photography, we wanted to know what came first, a love of nature or love of photography? I started photography pretty young. So I was 11 years old when my dad gave me a camera and it was film camera at the time because this was before digital photography. <laughs> and uh, I got interested in photographing kind of, you know, birds in my backyard in North Carolina. And it was through photography that I started traveling and getting interested in natural history and nature. And, you know, as, as you do that, like you, you inevitably witness issues, right? You, you know, you can, you can turn your camera to the beauty, but you can't ignore some of the problems when you become an observer of the world. And so I think that for me was kind of this transition to thinking of photography, not just as an art, which it certainly is, but also as a mission-driven kind of discipline that can help contribute to conservation. So was it out of, out of that uh, period of having the camera and learning how to use that camera and being out in nature that your desire to travel and explore this world came about? Or was that something that came from your parents? Um, I think it was really out of the photography. And my parents were wonderful at, you know, encouraging me to pursue my dreams and my curiosity. Both of them, like they took me to, I, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. We didn't do big family vacations. You know, I hadn't, I, I, I went to abroad for the first time, actually, I was very lucky when I was 14, I went to Russia and that was because I was able to sell photographs that I'd taken at a local pancake house in like North Carolina where I grew up. And I was able to save up enough money to go on this trip with some teachers to teach environmental education in Russia. It was an incredible experience. But I think for me, um, you know, I got an interested in travel and exploration just through reading. And I got interested in that through public libraries. Mm -hmm. And that was something that my mom did a lot was take us to the public library and get us books. And, um, you know, I definitely, you know, we're definitely want people to go out and buy the book, but we equally want people to go out and request it at their public library, because that to me is the best place where we can get this into the hands of kids from all different backgrounds. Your travels have taken you to 40 plus countries, uh, based on what I've been able to learn about you. How have those travels influenced your your mission, your work, and transformed who you are? Well, you know, I think the thing about traveling for me is that it's one of my greatest sources of hope, I think, because a lot of the travels that I get to do as a photographer, especially, are, you know, to work with, you know, scientists and in different places around the world, some of whom are featured in the book, or to work with conservation groups. And what I see when I travel and what I get to experience is lots of people around the world kind of doing all they can to make their communities a better place. And to me, um, I think that that's transformed the way I think about activism and, you know, conservation is that it's really for me about building capacity locally 
Um, and that's what I think I want to kind of devote my work to after finishing this dissertation and PhD, hopefully. Um, because I think that the more we can provide people and young people with tools to make a difference in the places where they live, the more change we're going to see at a global scale. Share some of the insights that you've, you've been able to gain from your research and just seeing how, how what you've taken in terms of your photography has actually had an impact and maybe speak to, to uh, how, uh, how, how those narratives and those stories are coming through in photography. Well, one of, so I'm still in the process of writing up some of this research. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I'm interested in is how we frame, uh, you know, with photographs, uh, visual images of nature and the environment. So for instance, you know, a question could be, does an image of a pristine coral reef influence you to give your money to conservation more or less than an image of a bleached coral reef mm -hmm. or a coral reef covered in plastic trash? And so that's one of the basic kind of questions that I'm interested in. And I think, you know, there's differences, right? Some of the research that I've looked at and I'm doing, you know, shows that maybe that negative image is one that maybe captures our attention in the moment and gets us to stop and look. Um, you know, but then there's also other research that shows that we need optimistic messaging, right, in order to sustain our interest and our drive so that we don't get so overwhelmed and kind of fatigued with the negative. And so what I'm interested in now is kind of looking at, you know, how you can frame messages over different timescales and what those can look like in terms of making sure that we not only give in the moment, but can sustain our energy um, because we're going to need a lot of it to to tackle some of these global challenges. I was curious about the things Gabby has seen throughout her travels that is most alarming to her. For me, the thing that really tears at my heartstrings is seeing the destruction of tropical forests um, and kind of, you know, seeing how development, which is necessary in some areas, right? But, you know, a road doesn't just mean a two-lane road. It can mean, you know, 20 miles of deforestation on either side of the road. And so as we develop, and if we don't develop thoughtfully, and we don't develop and, you know, create infrastructure with kind of wildlife corridors in mind or connectivity in mind, how that can really kind of create these islands that isolate animals and plants in a way that doesn't enable them to sustain themselves, you know, for, for long periods of time that kind of breaks that, um, that chain of connectivity. Um, so for me, that's, that's so difficult to see because it's such a short-term gain. It's for short-term short -term gain, right? It's necessary maybe for people to have access to education, to have access to medical, you know, facilities, to have a, to have a road, to have a highway. But if you don't have that intact ecosystem in the long run, then over time, that's going to influence fresh water. It's going to influence all kinds of things that people also need. And so that's the, that's the most difficult thing for me, I think, is just seeing it, but also understanding the complexity of these conservation issues. And I think that's why we need more social scientists looking at conservation, because it can help us understand and appreciate 
not just the environmentalist perspective, but also the human perspective and try to find solutions that can like integrate both the social and the ecological systems in a way that will make sense, not just tomorrow, but like, you know, hopefully 200 years from now. So that's what gets, gets to me. But, you know, I think there's, there's solutions out there. We just need to bring more people to the table to help find them. Mm -hmm. When you think about ecosystems and backdrops for your pictures of water or land or air, which is, do you have a favorite kind of canvas that you like to like to shoot on, so to speak? Oh, yeah. I mean, I am, I am a big fan of, um, yeah, yeah, I think like montane tropical forests are my favorite kind of ecosystem to photograph in. So kind of a cloud forest, you know, where they're perpetually kind of covered in mist and clouds. There's this beautiful kind of mist that provides a lot of depth to the images, but there's also an amazing amount of biodiversity. And you, you see these forests in tropical countries all over the world, you know, from Costa Rica to um, Indonesia to, you know, uh, countries in, uh, yeah, all over the Andes. Uh, so that, that's where I really love being. Travel is transformative, and with all the countries Gabby has traveled to, we asked her about her transformational travel story. Um, I think for me, it would be visiting the island of Mauritius in the Indian Ocean, where I got to stay for almost eight months working on a project on conservation um, recovery efforts around endangered species. Um, and so that was really wonderful because I got to really know the people that, that were doing the work. And that was one of those experiences that gave me a lot of hope. Is there a country that you've identified or you, you just feel is like, I call it your soul country. Is there a country that really just connects with you and makes you feel like, oh, I've lived here before? Oof, that's a good question. Um, I think the country that I keep getting drawn back to, and it's kind of countries within a country, right? It's Indonesia because of the many islands. But I, I just absolutely have loved my time there, the people I've gotten to know, and there's so much to explore. I mean, it's just an extraordinary. If you could choose anyone, past or present, to maybe sit next to on a long haul flight to Indonesia, who would that be? <laughs> Oh my goodness, that's a great question. Um, so there was an explorer named Marianne North, who was a botanical artist, who was I think around the Victorian era, and she went off on her own across the world to paint incredible plants. And boy, I would just love to know the challenges and <laughs> she faced on those journeys. You can read her journals. She has an amazing like permanent exhibit at Kew Gardens in the UK of all of her paintings, but. I always think of her because, I mean, there just had to be some amazing stories and amazing barriers she overcame um, in, her, in her work. No Boundaries is published by National Geographic and is available wherever books are sold. This was a great conversation, my dear. First, you know, I love our discussion about the many creative ways we can make a difference in the world. and. Um, STEM is very important and we need more girls and women pursuing STEM disciplines, but the arts 
have a powerful place in this world as well, which is why I prefer to use the acronym STEAM. Uh, you know, look at us. We're lawyers turned travel journalists. Uh, we're creatives and we're sharing powerful messages through our platform. Gabby's book and her overall approach to embracing uh, science and wanting to share that with a much broader audience is something that uh, we don't see a lot of. And it's nice to see a book that's focused on what women are accomplishing across all ethnic groups, across all geographies, and at least allowing young women, girls to see themselves doing things that perhaps they couldn't ordinarily imagine doing. And so kudos to her for taking that step and sharing these stories of people, many of whom we would never have heard of but for this book. Absolutely. And, you know, and I, I want to ask you this question because this came up in our conversation um, about the use of visual images. What is your thought about the question uh, Gabby is answering it with her thesis about being motivated by positive imagery or negative imagery, you know, taking the example of the coral reefs that we discussed, you know, would you be more motivated by colorful coral reefs to um, uh, provide funds to protect them? Or would bleached coral reefs um, give you the, you know, uh, incentive to protect them? That's an interesting question. I think sometimes if things appear to be intact, we might think that there's no real issue there, that uh, that situation's okay. So I think the emotional part of our lives and being a human is when we see things that tear at us. And even though uh, a lot of those images, whether it's uh, a degraded environment or even right now we're seeing a lot of war images, those are the things that really uh, tug at us, uh, tug at our emotions and really uh, cause us to want to act. And so I tend to think that it's the negative images that perhaps get us out of our comfort zone. That's just my take on it. Yeah, you know, but as as taking, you know, the coral reef example as a scuba diver, um, when I see these images and see what people are doing and, and the lack of stewardship uh, others are showing this planet, uh, it gives me an incentive, you know, to protect these beautiful images that I'm, I'm seeing. It's a great question. We'd love to, uh, you know, invite you, our audience, to, to think about this question as well. Uh, great conversation we had. In closing, let's reflect on the words of Michelle Nichols, NASA ambassador and Star Trek actress. Science is not a boy's game. It's not a girl's game. It's everyone's game. It's about where we are and where we're going. Space travel benefits us here on Earth, and we ain't stopped yet. There's more exploration to come. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're so happy that you're here. You know, we put so much effort into bringing you value, so please support us with a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us. And if you leave us a review, we'll read it in the end credits of our next podcast. Also, please join our community for travel news, tips, and more by subscribing to our newsletter. Thank you for your support and for giving us the space to share the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. 
This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.